that's a shift as we become more global thinkers. I think men are adapting to that as well. I think it's it's becoming just a new way of doing business um, for a lot of people. Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. We are a community for curious people, for people at a life or career crossroads, ready to rejoin their soul and their role. We are insatiably curious about how self-knowledge can make us better humans and help us make a bigger impact. The more we learn, the better we get. And there are people from a wide variety of disciplines doing the work. They can teach us something about ourselves and the work we can do. I'm Shelley Prevost. I'm an educational psychologist. And I'm Chad Prevost. I'm a writer and teacher. We are partners in business and partners in life. We have in-depth conversations that cut to the chase and reveal that our inner work is critical if we want to leave a mark on the world. This is Big Self Work. Let's get started. Kim Shumpert talks with us this week about a new model of female leadership. Kim was selected to serve as the executive director for Chattanooga Women's Leadership Institute in May 2018. Kim twice served as an executive director working with underserved women and children, and she reminds us that when women thrive, everyone thrives. Hey, Kim. Welcome to the show. Hey, Shelly. Thanks for having me. I appreciate We're it. We're so Good glad you're here. Here. So I want to launch into an article that came out this week, I believe, in, in Forbes. It's an article entitled, What Do Countries with the Best Coronavirus Responses Have in Common? Women Leaders. And there is a picture of the leaders from, not, or is that, yeah, nine, eight, seven different countries from Germany to Taiwan, New Zealand, of all um, women leaders who are doing a really effective job. And the article kind of uh, points to some of the characteristics and then juxtaposes that to some of the male leadership we're seeing. So I wanted to ask if you've seen that article and if you could talk a little bit about uh, what you're seeing here in our community, what you're seeing kind of collectively as a nation, how women are rising to these um, leadership positions, and why are we uniquely positioned right now for our skill set to, to be needed as much as it is? Uh, such a great question. You know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this. Somebody posted that uh, to Facebook the other day and tagged me. And it's been one of the great joys of my position during this time to get to really have some deep dives with female leaders. And it's been, um, it, it is just, you know, typically we female leaders are so busy, we don't have time to stop and have a conversation. Mm -hmm. And this has created a moment that that we need to have conversation and it's brought that forward. We, we're doing a series on with our organization. We're doing a series of interviews weekly, at least weekly, sometimes more often with females around our community. And what I gleaned from what I read in the article um, was similar to what I'm seeing here at the community level. So in, in other words, I think it transcends. So I, I always look for patterns mm. and the pattern that I would say that to me, makes this our moment to shine is that women have this very unique, um, just since the dawn of time instinct for adaptation. And we are just uniquely designed for this. We are uniquely designed to, to understand 
how societies are compartmentalized, but also to blur those lines between those compartmentalizations mm. because of the, the necessary roles that we play within society. I am at once thinking about um, all of my children's schedules for homeschooling while I'm also thinking about um, systemic and policy shifts that need to happen within our, our uh, nonprofit sector, within our local community. Mm -hmm. Those two things are not mutually exclusive to me, and they're happening in sync at the same time all day, every day right now. Mm -hmm. okay. And I think that that's no different. No. Okay. Shelly telling me to stop as I was trying yeah, to Yeah, no, I want to hear what she's saying. Can, go ahead and continue. Yeah, no, I mean, that was basically, I just, I think that the commonality is that, that women are uniquely designed for adaptation. We, we have been, we've been having to adapt for, you know, again, since the dawn of time, everything that sort of comes at us, we have to respond to. And so we, you know, I think about all of that. We, we give lip service sometimes as women to um, sort of the patriarchy and how, how um, institutions have been, um, have been formed. And what's interesting to me is that if you really stop and watch Women work within those systems and they they adapt to the, the limitations of those systems. And then they say, OK, let me utilize this limitation and go over here and create a new space and then begin to blend and bridge the two together for evolution. And so I, I just think that we're, we're seeing that right now. I, I think that we're seeing those unique skill sets on on display because of the synthesis between all of these worlds. That's just I don't know. That's I don't know. Talk back to me. What do you think? I think that's makes a ton of sense. You have a question though. Well, I mean, I've just been shushed once, so I'll I'll try to um, form this carefully. Now, I uh, I mean, of course, I I think that I see a lot of that versatility uh, and and sort of globular, I, I guess, for lack of a better word, thinking of. Um, on women's parts, well, I guess, you know, it's a complex issue. What would we say? Like, is it, is it that men are, we, we compartmentalize and just think about one thing at a time? Uh, do we have a tendency to, um, sort of have a lack of flexibility? Is it just simply because we're used to being, um, as a, as a gender in power so that we, kind of don't quite, I mean, what, what is it about the male brain, uh, or experience that leads it to perhaps not having as much flexibility or versatility? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. And, and I really think that it's, you know, the, the, the blending of both skills, um, from men and women and the, the differences between them are actually needed here. And my response to that, of course, I'm not a, a neuroscientist, but my response to that just from observation is that, Sometimes the way systems are designed allow for more time and space for men to have contemplation, which leads to more strategic thinking. So if you are accustomed to an environment where you are allowed the space and time to have that strategic thinking in place, then you, you tend to, to gravitate towards that habitually. And I think that that's a very necessary thing. I think that's how we have arrived at the way our government functions. I think that there's a necessary a necessity to that. I just think that in this particular moment, 
sort of rapid fire responsiveness and adaptation has its moment because, you know, women have, have generally had to have a little bit more rapidity to the way that we think. We don't have the luxury of having the time to be as strategic as we would like. And sometimes I think that that can be a hindrance to how women excel um, because we're just not, um, we don't, we just don't have the same luxury of that. Um, you know, again, that's just an observation. Yeah, I think women are, are um, and again, I think that some of the data bears that out. You can see within companies that adapt, uh, that that have adaptations for women or accommodations for women to say work a four a four day work week. That a lot of times you you have increased productivity from those uh, women because their motivations are different. They are motivated by so many different factors and being the glue for systems that they're they're minds um, are, are, you know, sort of navigating these things simultaneously. And so that productivity increases in a shorter amount of time. Mm. That's not, you know, obviously these are generalizations, but, and, and they're not absolutes, but I, but I do believe that, and that I believe that that's a shift as we become more global thinkers. I think men are adapting to that as well. I think it's, it's becoming just a new way of doing business um, for a lot of people, but it's been an old way of doing business for, for women, I think for a long time. And it's just that women don't self-promote. Yeah, that that's true. And I know that you're going from personal observation as well. I mean, there's, I mean, the science isn't even completely, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of people with a lot of agendas come down on one side or the other with their books, but one that is really good that I just came across, I think it's been out for a few years is, uh, delusions of gender by Cordelia, um, fine. And, um, you know, she really actually really researches the, uh, the neuroscience between the, um, the brains between the genders and, um, has some, some real, real insights that the brains are more similar than we think, I think is one of her takeaways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And wouldn't that, wouldn't that stand a reason if you are given the same level of exposure and experience, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if you take a man and a woman from birth and you monitor and track them and you give them as you simulate as closely as you can, similar experiences, uh, throughout education and career, that would stand a reason that you would expect to have sort of that synthesis. So again, is it, to me, it's not an either or proposition. It's a, it's time to really, uh, survey our institutions. Mm. So there is a, a quote from the article that I'm going to have Chad read because oh. I might, I might cry if I read it. So I'll let him read it and then I want us to talk about it. Okay. Uh, So the quote is generally the empathy and care, which all of these female leaders have communicated seems to come from an alternate universe that the one we have gotten than the one we have gotten used to. It's like their arms are coming out of their videos to hold you in a heartfelt and loving embrace. Who knew leaders could sound like this? Now we do. So what are your thoughts about this, Kim? Yeah, I love that. Um, You know, again, I I just believe that there is this um, innate ability for um, a woman to articulate. Again, women are kind of given more permission, I think, to have some of those vulnerabilities. And we're at a moment where everybody can sort of own up to their, to, to this being a vulnerable moment. Therefore those voices can come through and be heard. I'm not sure that the messages have, have not been being sent all along, but now they're being received. And I think that, that, you know, 
the way that we lead in that space is is again the the way that we're going to have to lead moving forward in all aspects. Yes. And I agree. I mean, I just think it's amazing to watch anybody be able to to do that. I, I would argue even that that Joe Biden, you know, to me, again, I don't think that this is an us versus them, but I would argue that Joe Biden has that ability to say, to, to really empathize. And I think that that's because he's had loss. He's had mm-hmm. suffering. He's had some of those empathic experiences that really connect you as a human being that you can't deny once you've walked through that. So let's shift for a minute because I want to ask you about your own personal leadership journey. So you have a tremendous amount of insight and wisdom. Uh, you're leading the Chattanooga Women's Leadership Institute as the executive director. Uh, you have a plethora of, of background and experience uh, and a passion for, for working and serving alongside women in leadership. How did you get here? Tell us a little bit about your your journey into this leadership position. Wow, that's a loaded question. <laughs> that's a good one. Um, I know. Yeah, it's <laughs> a really good one. And and I'll I'll I'll, tr- I'll try not to spend too much time here, but I, I would be remiss in in not mentioning that the foundational parts of my faith journey inform what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in both good and, and not so great ways. Um, and so, so I grew up in a more um, fundamentalist, um, traditional, um, evangelical Christian upbringing. And what was interesting about that was that I had a mother who was the spiritual leader of our family. Um, and my father did not go to church at all. And so for all intents and purposes, um, my mother was a leader within the church. She was what, what many would call an elder. She functioned in those roles. Um, she made decisions. People came to her. I mean, you know, the leaders of the church would ask her opinion before they made a move one way or the other. But that was never formally recognized as a role that she was allowed to have. I remember right before she died, she called me um, and she was so proud because she was bilingual. She could speak Spanish. And so uh, the church that she was at had um, decided to to merge with a Spanish speaking church. So every other Sunday they would do the service entirely in Spanish. And my mother was so proud because one day they asked her to to stand on stage and translate into English what was being said from the pulpit. And she called me and she said, she said, Kim, I got to preach today, Mm. which was such a big, you know, revolutionary thing and something that was, you know, never um, allowed for her. And so so that therefore was never allowed for me either. And it wasn't until much later that I started really reviewing that and, and just asking why. Why was that not allowed? Because it's so fundamental um, to the fabric of my being that I, I really had to unpack what was, um, in my opinion, wrong about that setup. Why my mother wasn't allowed to be recognized as a spiritual leader within uh, her her faith community. And so it just kind of began um, this this journey of first looking there at that at that particular institution and then expanding it beyond that circle and seeing how that influenced other institutions. Right. So how how did that programming for women um, make itself known in lots of other settings? And it was at that point, it was a once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it Mm -hmm. sort of problem. And, um, and then eventually my career path just sort of led me to where I am now. And this has just been the perfect fit 
to again bring all of that together and and begin some some important conversations that that I really think have had their beginnings for, probably for the last ten years, but we haven't we haven't institutionalized the new thinking right we haven't given it a proper and formalized platform. Mm-hmm. And so now we're beginning to see that happen. I always say that we've done a really good job of of defining what women are against, but now it's time to build what we're for. And in order to do that, you have to do it systemically. And so that's kind of where we are now is trying to build what what the new systems look like now that we've sort of broken down the old ones. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I want to ask you a little bit more to unpack that. But before we do, I know that you are an Enneagram 3 So you are a performer slash achiever, and I have a lot of that in me as well. So I wanted to ask if you would share some of your kind of your leadership ups and downs, knowing that that's your personality. Like, where do you feel strong as a leader and where have you maybe had to spend a little bit more time kind of rubbing the edges a little bit? So as a three, um, I've been kind of wrapping my mind around what this sort of means um, in terms of communication skills. Mm. So I don't know if you can relate to this, but but as a three, you know, one of the things that it talks about in our personality is a need for credit. Mm. And I've always, that has always not sat well with me. I've always been very uncomfortable, uncomfortable with that because it's the the part of me that's a little vulnerable. I, I do believe that I want credit for the work that I do. Um, but it sounds very selfish and narcissistic um, when you put it in the ways that that it's put sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as I've thought about it, to me as a three, what credit looks like is it's more of a you know we I, I, we really gravitate towards measurables. I really like to find a goal, achieve a goal, mm-hmm. check the goal off. When I get credit for something, especially if it's an idea that I'm formulating and there's credit given for that, it becomes a measurable for me that the thing that I was trying, the message that I was trying to send was received in the way that I intended it to be received. So where that trips me up is that some of the things that I work on are years in formation. And, and we're in the transformative business with what we do. Yeah, you all, you have big goals that take a long time. Big goals yeah. take a long time, right? So you're not going to get the credit, right? You're not going to get a lot of credit as you go because you're trying to help people see something that they can't yet see. And so, so that, that really trips me up and, and makes me want to rush the process sometimes. I'm often told, Kim, you're on Mountain 11 and everybody else is back here on Mountain 2. And so, you know, so I have to really, um, I have to slow down and I have to figure out different ways to get the feedback that I need in order to know if I'm taking the right next steps. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. And I think that, you know, some of those things with our, personality type that that don't feel comfortable that do feel vulnerable when we peek under the hood that's the shadow showing up it's um it's the things that we would rather people not see but i think too when you when you do become aware of them like you are like like we are trying to be with our chad and i with our personalities it's like you can't put the genie back in the bottle so you do mm-hmm. have to figure out okay like this is if this credit thing is important to me how do i integrate this in a healthy way. And I think this, this, how you've kind of played with that in terms of metrics 
that this is a piece of, of your style that's important. So I, I don't, yeah, I don't think you can deny that. That's part of who you are and how you see the world. So, um, and I would say, I would add to it's, it's really important. You know, I have to, as I'm, as I'm mature as, as a leader, I can be very, very immature in this particular space. And as I'm mature as a leader, I have to get very comfortable with the goals and objectives that I want to see met possibly being met through other people mm. and propping those people up to meet those goals and objectives. And maybe those people are part of my direct team. Maybe they're not, maybe they're other community leaders. And, and so, you know, again, I think we get into this um, sort of competitiveness. I know that I can, and I have to really walk that back a little bit. I think you're like the third person that we've talked to and has, has brought up and we've talked to all women today has brought up this idea of competitiveness and comparisons like every, mm-hmm. and I think that's something that's really interesting with the, the unique maybe to a woman's experience is this kind of constant scanning and comparison and like measuring up. Am I, am I doing as well as, as Kim? Am I, you know, like, I think there is something about that, 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 I don't know. I just think it's really, it's really interesting that we're all kind of thinking and talking about that. Well, I'm going to have to interject a little bit here and say that I think that men definitely do it too. Probably. I think it just has a different flavor or feeling maybe between the genders, but I think that our whole culture is based on this meritocracy. So we're all, you know, feeling competitive where, you know, we, perhaps should be feeling more collaborative. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like it's a filtering issue, Chad? Do you feel like it's that, you know, to your point about meritocracy, I would love to see us all be able to, um, to focus on sort of the, the big things, the big, um, goals and objectives that need to be met. But sometimes in this meritocracy, we focus so on things that have, you know, that are so, much in the minutiae. So I can, you know, I can, it's much easier for me to compete with Shelly over what she puts out on Facebook than it is for, for me and Shelly to work together to compete together against the ideas that keep women in a box, for mm-hmm. instance. So like, how do you, how do you navigate that? Right? Yeah. No, I, and I don't know. That's, well, that's I, a big yeah, question. I think, I think, and we've talked about this before, Kim, but the, the kind of the things that pull us down is you know, into the minutia is like this, this fear. I mean, I think that's the basic emotion. If I were to drill it down into one simplified emotion, that's it. And mm-hmm. until we address what we're afraid of, what am I so afraid of in myself that I have to compare myself to Kim or, or anybody? Then I don't right. think we can lift up. I don't think we even have the, the opportunity to lift up. And so you know, it's really hard to ha- give ourselves the space and time to do that work when we're so scanning and looking around and freaking out and I'm not measuring up. So it's a lot yeah. of mental work to, to pull back out of that. Um, and I do think it takes a, a lot of emotional maturity. Um, to sit with it because it's so uncomfortable. You know, I don't want to sit with my fear. Like that doesn't, that's not fun. That doesn't feel good. And and maybe part of the fear is like not completely always knowing who we are. One of the very things about big self is to help us realize our true self and do the inner work, whether we're uh, men or women. And, you know, like I'm working on um, uh, a series of, of meditations 
under the title of who do you think you are? And, you know, I mean that on both senses of the word, like, who do you think you are? As well as, you know, well, who do you think you are? And, And I think in terms of meritocracy, we are always sizing each other up in a way, even if it's unconscious. And sometimes we don't feel, speaking of the fear, we don't feel like we are good enough. And then that does bring out this kind of, it, maybe not chip on your shoulder, but the, the sensitive, uh, insecure ego um, and, you know, competition, even when we, when, there's a healthy competition and then there's the, the, the kind that I guess is destructive. Yeah. And, and I think as this relates to women, part of what we deal with on a regular basis is Again, some of this self-suppression because of exactly what you're talking about in terms of the competition and the comparison, but also because we have come to believe that the way that we are doesn't, in fact, have merit and doesn't, in fact, work in a meritocracy because it doesn't, the way that we are doesn't necessarily speak to the currency that, that quote unquote, the American dream was built on, maybe. Um, and, and so I think that there are aspects of that. And I think that we're redefining that right now. There are women who are redefining. So if traditionally you had to give up something that was so deep within you, for example, you had to give up a family for your career, then, you know, again, that didn't have merit in that sort of um, language. There wasn't a language that we could could transcend. And I think younger women um, are are overcoming that. And I think that the Forbes article is demonstrating that you don't fundamentally have to give up who you are in order to achieve um, the American dream. It's that we've got to redefine what the American dream looks like, because let's face it, the, the old American way that we've talked about is not actually sustainable, in particular when you have this social media explosion that just fosters our, our darkest angels and yeah. tries to, to give us lies about what the American dream is. Well, uh, speaking of which, like you said that, you know, women are defining not so much what they're against, but what they are for, um, as you're working with other women leaders and you yourself are leading, what, um, what are you seeing women, um, fighting for so much as not being against? So what we're, what we're finding, we conducted a survey in 2019 and um, we asked the women to, um, to sort of rank the things that, that they wanted to see happen the most. Um, and so, so they gave us, there was a list of about 20 different things that, that were barriers. And we asked them to rank those barriers in, in order of importance in their life or order of, of how they sort of show up in their life. So they did that. And then we ranked um, uh, about seven different possible solutions. And, you know, some of the some of the things that you would expect came to bear. Uh, they want wage equity. Um, and what's interesting about that particular one is I, I think that we can all agree is that, that women deserve some sort of pay equity. But what was interesting was they also want flexibility. And sometimes those two things are mutually exclusive. Those are actually, actually the top two answers. And so they want to be able to balance um, their their other commitments within their life with their career. It's not that they don't want to be productive and don't want to have a career. But again, sort of going back to this American dream ideology, 
traditionally we've said you need to be in your seat from 8.30 to 5.30. You need to, on, on Monday through Friday, and then, oh, by the way, we expect you to also be available digitally at the other hours. And, um, and so that doesn't leave realistically a lot of space for you to wear other hats. So if you come you know, it's it's hard for a woman to advocate to um, to her superior to say, look, I can actually get done in a four day work week what I need to get done and I can be productive for you. And I believe you should pay me as much as you pay Charlie over here who's working five days a week. It's a very difficult argument and it's very difficult for women to advocate uh, for themselves in that space. But what we don't typically recognize is that the way that our system is currently set up, and again, this is not true of everybody, but generally our system is not set up to where Charlie bears the brunt of all of the other societal burdens. So, for example, as soon as we all became sequestered for COVID-19, as soon as we started pulling back, the day that school let out, my husband went to work that day. He went he went in as normal. He woke up, he got ready, he went in just like normal because his office wasn't yet closed. Somebody had to take on the brunt of now homeschooling, cooking, you know, cooking meals all day long, doing all of those other jobs that were that were suddenly you know that had had been outsourced were now suddenly under my roof. And yet I was expected to continue this career as well, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the women that we work with were, were confronted with that reality day one. Many of the men that we work with were not. So I can't avoid that reality. I can disagree with it all day long, but I can't avoid that reality. Mm-hmm. And so until we can make that different, we've got to make some accommodations and, and help women be able to be what they need to be. So that's the biggest thing that they're for is that they want to be paid, but a lot of them are taking less money because they want time. And my argument is, if they can get done in less time what they need to get done, why should they accept less money for it? Well, do you think, Kim, that this uh, new normal is going to have any kind of a lasting impact on these very perceptions? I mean, you're just seeing so many people say, oh, yeah, that that whole thing about how they said we had to be in the office to get the work done and somehow the work is getting done and we're not in the office. Um, The cat's out of the bag, isn't it? Right. Right. Let's hope. That's right. If we, and again, we did it so quickly, right? We all adapted to this new environment so quickly, proving that it can be done. You know, yeah, you, you lose some, some of the face-to-face and and nobody is suggesting that you do away with face-to-face altogether because there is value in that. There's value in that type of communication. You get a hundred, a hundred percent of a person's communication when you're face-to-face with them, but you're exactly right. There is no way There's no reason not to leverage technology to redefine what this can look like. So this reminds me, so you know this, Kim, but I did a a TED Talk in 2015, and it was Lead Like a Girl, and it was all around um, collective intelligence that was based on a lot of the research coming out of an MIT lab. And they showed that if you want the the most innovative team that you can have, doing really effective work uh, rapidly, then you need to have what they call social sensitivity heightened, like a lot more social sensitivity versus people talking over each other and interrupting each other and and arguing. 
And they found that the more women on a team, the higher social sensitivity. And so I, here I am thinking, you know, we've got these decentralized work environments now. People, it's very decentralized. Everyone's at home and everyone's using technology, uh, which is what this whole collective intelligence is about. It's about uh, tr- how technology is changing work cultures. And so now I'm like, okay, so there's this gap now and how do we lead teams effectively? And it's bearing out in the research that more women stepping into leadership really can change these teams. And so women can work in a way that does not make them sacrifice being a mother, being a a spouse, a partner, and work in these integrated ways. I think we're going to see a lot of really um, amazing, powerful, effective work come from women leaders. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. And and I'm interested to see, you know, we're we're playing around with a model that, and I can't speak to it a lot right now. Um, hopefully we'll have some announcements about it later in the year, but uh, yeah, I know it's a little bit of a teaser. Uh-huh. Um, but we're we're playing around with how do we how do we um insert ourselves into that space. We we anticipate that there may be a lot of women who are looking for new opportunities mm-hmm. as we return to work because of the layoffs, because of furloughs, because of just because they're just, you know, sort of not ready to settle anymore. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to to discover what that can mean for um for leveraging that and equipping and mobilizing that. I think that there's two things at play. We don't promote women into roles of leadership like we should and women don't ask for it like they should they don't again they they think that um they shouldn't i think mm-hmm. i think part of it is they don't think that they should have to ask for it they shouldn't they don't feel like they should have to ask that it ought to be self-evident well and the, the ways that a lot of women not every woman but a lot of women typically lead is devalued by patriarchal systems and more masculine systems and so um so, cause I'm sitting here like, yeah, I don't think women should have to ask the women should just do it. They should just lead, but often the way they lead naturally is not valued. And so there's this tendency to kind of shirk back kind of retreat. Um, so that, so then it does feel like I need to ask. You know? So we have some work to do on the value proposition, right? Absolutely. We have some work to do. Yeah. yeah. Cause I would say that as Shelly, as you're saying, um, you, whether man or woman, you don't, shouldn't really have to ask for, for promotions. If you're uh, a leader, you're leading through your actions, but it really does seem to be in my experience in the workplace, it is interpreted differently when a woman is asserting herself as opposed to a man. It, it really, it, it's unfortunate. But here's the thing. Like, here's what I hope that we are starting to see, you know, that bears out in this Forbes article, the, the leaders that have a balance of masculine decisiveness and female, um, empathy, they are the most effective. Like they're the ones that are getting shit done. (laughs) And they can make a decision. It's not about feeling good. It's about who's, who's effective here. Yes. I mean, you make a great point about decisiveness, right? So there is this component of we've got to get ourselves out of the weeds and we've got to get ourselves out of the minutia and, and take a step forward. It's sort of this analysis paralysis that we mm-hmm. allow ourselves to get stuck in and it's ineffective. Yeah. 
I'm curious. So we, we, we talk about the, the masculine and feminine ways of leading. And, you know, we hear a lot of talk about whether it's empathy, we hear a lot of talk about vulnerability and you have to be willing to be vulnerable. Um, I wonder like, well, first, I guess, do, do you lead through vulnerability um, or do you find that you like, I guess anyone in, in, in the world of power, um, that, that you can be burned by it or that you have been taught to be careful, to be vulnerable? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I think it's something that I, that I work at. Um, I'm not sure that I'm very good at communicating vulnerability sometimes. Um, I'll be the first to admit that my drive um, can can create an armor uh, around me sometimes. Um, when I am with my people, um, and, and there, there are a few who have been witness to this, but they see that breakdown and they see that, you know, they see that vulnerability really shine through. And it is very different to take that vulnerability that you share in private with the people closest to you and begin to scale it out to a leadership model. It's not as easy. Everybody says, you know, lead from a place of vulnerability, but you, you also have this, um, there's a, there's a pace to it because you also run this risk as a woman of just coming off as being an oversharer, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this fine line between genuine and authentic vulnerability and, and empathy and, and really um, coming off um, inauthentic or disingenuous or as, as though you're sharing more than anybody actually wants to hear. So, so I guess channeling it into a purpose um, is, is in sort of organizing it under an umbrella of purpose is kind of an important piece that I think needs to be stated when you're talking about leading from vulnerability. Yeah, and I... Think I think about that just in terms like, you know, my home vulnerability looks different than my work vulnerability. And, you know, I've, as, and I've, I've, I too have continued to do a lot of work around this. Um, probably even from the other side, Kim, in terms of like my vulnerability, um, comes easily. And so I have to really work at shielding that and protecting myself. And to your point, Chad, about can people use it against you? And use it to, um, you know, push certain agendas or kind of out-argue you, uh, knowing that there's a, a vulnerable topic. And so I think there is, there is, um, there's something to be careful about with that. And I think Brene Brown does talk about like that distinction between vulnerability. And we're going to have Sabrina Moon come on the podcast at some oh, point, right. so, so she'll talk about that. Well, I, I wanted to say that, like, the, um, I almost feel like we need to define our terms sometimes yeah. when we talk about vulnerability because um, I'm, you know, I have always been um, very what I, I want to be sincere or authentic. Um, and I don't think that's all, always um, done me well in certain um, environments where people are kind of vying for power, whether consciously or unconsciously. Mm -hmm. And that has actually led me recently to be super curious about this book that I discovered um, by Robert Greene. It's called The 48 Laws of Power. And I am just slowly absorbing this book. And I'm just thinking about the ways that people 
use what they know manipulate yeah <laughs> in in ways i so vulnerabilities it's like i'm i would i'd feel like right now i feel super cautious about about being vulnerable right and, you know, I think, though, that there is a freedom in, in acknowledging that. And that's, you know, some of the self-work that you guys continue to work on is I think probably people, if you can make a person doubt themselves, you have absolute power over that person. Ooh. And so we do that in systems. We do that in relationships. And if we can get to a place where. I can say to those that I'm in front of and those that I lead, I have no idea what I am doing. And I sincerely hope that we can navigate this together without it jeopardizing my job, my livelihood, my role as a, as a family person. If I can begin to be open and transparent about that and be truly vulnerable about that, then those who are, it, it actually grows um, that, that camaraderie amongst your team. And I've seen that kind of play out with my my board of directors, um, and I've seen you know other executive directors who have not been able to navigate that because you have this weird balance of power between a board and an executive director. So, in my particular application, you know I'm not a boss of my board, right? I have a it's a team that I have to bring along at a pace and build consensus with. Yeah. And and in my opinion, it's no different. If you're a strong leader in a company, you should do this too. But it's but I have to do it more because they are my boss. And in, in, in fact, but a lot of times they don't know what it is that they're doing or where we need to head next. They look to me to have that strategy and to have those answers. And a lot of times I don't have those answers. So I have to be able to come back at them and say, in this particular instance, I don't know what I'm doing. Here are some, here are a few options that I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm and have that dialogue. And it has really, it, that, that has been a, a hard lesson to learn. This is my third time being a, an executive director. And each time I've learned a little bit more about the necessity of doing that. And to me, that's the new model is, is it's not necessarily making all decisions by committee, but it is bringing forward ideas and allowing there to be robust and authentic um, dialogue yeah. and sincerity. Being honest. It. Yeah. And I love, I love the, the definition of vulnerability, <clears throat> this, you know, courageously stepping into uncertainty and risk and emotional yeah. exposure. Like I'm going to walk into this conversation and I'm not, I'm going to share, my, honestly share where I'm at. And I don't know how this is going to land. I don't know where this is going to go. And so to yeah. me, that is vulnerability. And I do think um, there's practice in that and there's a lot of ways to get better at it. And I think women are really, uh, we're not scared of vulnerability, most women. Uh, but I do think there is, there's some internal work to, to be done um, in terms of how we do it. You know, if that's mm -hmm. the goal, I think that as we practice it more and more in workplaces, we do have to be careful of what we're stepping into when emotional risk and exposure might be um, hurtful to us and, and figuring out how to navigate those as well. So that would be my, my vulnerability comment. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, well, let's uh, sort of um, move to, to this question, just like Kim, um, how would you guys, how would you say that you and your family, how are you just surviving right now, uh, just getting by and how are you thriving and flourishing in this new normal? I'm going to tell you what, I have three primary functions in a day. 
I get up, I put on clothes, I eat breakfast, I work at something, although I feel very stuck at the moment, and then I open a bottle of wine. So I'm not sure I'm the best example for somebody who really likes to achieve, to feel like you're not working towards something and being productive is very crippling. And it has been very humbling. I'll be honest, but you know, overall, I I like my roommates. We're doing pretty well uh, for the most part. (laughs) We're making it. it. That's good. So it's kind of a both and right there. Providing and driving. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I, I think probably my heart goes out to my daughter the most. She's uh, involved in AP classes and, that will determine, you know, future college credits. And she's just at that phase of her life. And I know you guys have kids in the same situation. And they're asking us to administer AP tests at home. And again, of the things that I am equipped to do, uh, educating my children is not one of them. And so uh, it's just my heart goes out to her and to all the seniors that are out there right now. And, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of grief. Mm-hmm. I will be honest. We've had, we've had a few days of grief around here where I just sort of crawl into a ball and I cry. Yeah. We've had that too. I've had that too. I told an empathy hangover today. Yeah. Right word. After yeah. the tornadoes yesterday, I just was like, oh, how much more can people take? After your literal hangover. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With a bottle of wine, Kim. <laughs> yeah, well, more, more than I would like it to. It is what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, uh, yeah, I, again, I am, I refuse to let shame be a part of this narrative on the other side, regardless of how we all needed to cope. Yeah, all exactly. Yeah, I feel like we are in this really, really interesting place. Um, a couple of days ago, there I got excited about this Medium article floating around or people are really being asked to kind of reset in a way that, uh, you know, if, if a meritocracy and this kind of survival and striving and uh, busy and doing and performing was our, our normal before, like we have this, you know, the great pause of 2020 to really think about what do we want to reset? And so Chad and I, we've had lots of conversations. I mean, at one point I'm like, we're moving to a farm. We're going <laughs> to sell all our possessions. Uh, we might run for office. Like, no, I'm kidding. But a lot of like, no, a lot totally of ideas did. around what, oh. Hello. All right, I'm getting a spam call. Okay. <laughs> okay. We, yeah, we're not friends with potential either. We don't potential. think potential has potential. You can cut that out, right? Yes. Okay. So yeah, I, my whole point is I think there is just a really interesting awakening happening right now. And I can't wait to see what we keep and what we throw out. Yeah. Who should define it, Shelly? I know. Who gets to define it? I, that's actually been one of my questions. Like who gets to decide? We, we yeah. decide. And how do we do, how do we live differently? That's right. What are we for? What are we for? And how do we convince those with money about why they should be for it too. Mm-hmm. I think that's something we've really got to think about. Well, there is that one small thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You can't default, I guess, is what I'm saying. And, and that that is going to be our, um, it's what we're going to want to do. We're going to want to settle back into to comfort, but we're forever changed by this. So that's not even a, a reality. Mm-hmm. People are going to have the illusion of it after this and say, oh, we're just going to get back to normal. But there's something that I think has shifted. Yeah. And I, I wonder, I guess I agree with you, Kim, about the, 
the people in, with money and power and how to how to help them shift also. But a part of me too is like, what does opting out look like? You know, what is some, what does it look like for us to say, like, you can play your game, play your power game and your money game. And I'm just going to be over here, you know, climbing a different mountain. Hmm. And in so doing, defining new values. Yeah, because exactly. Because I do think there's going to be there's going to be a lot of people looking for a new mountain. Like I want to climb something different, something based on values and meaning that is not what I've been buying into. And I think they need leaders to help shape that and define that and talk about that, help them do that. So the other day, my husband and I played this game with each other and we just said, you know, what are your, what, what are your top 10? What are the, what are your top 10 things that make you who you are essentially what are what's your value proposition you know what are what are the things that you truly if everything else was stripped away what makes you you and so he was running through um you know the ones for me and and I kept waiting and I kept waiting and finally you know he sort of did countdown from 10 to 1 and finally at the end he said your number one is probably that you do something purposeful you need to do something purposeful for a living you need to feel like you're working towards a, a purpose. And, you know, and he's exactly right. And and what that has meant, the way that that has been translated over the years is that I've taken less money. And what he what he would say is less money than my skill set would would get on the on the uh, for profit market mm-hmm. to be in the nonprofit sector to do purposeful work. And I mean, to some extent, that's true because that's the way things are currently set up. And I think I'm just on a mission to to redefine that for not only the nonprofit sector, but for the for profit sector and help people really understand the value of purposeful work and that all work is purposeful if you bring your values to it Mm -hmm. and you understand what your values are. And so to your point, Shelly and Chad, I think we have an opportunity in the space that you're providing in particular to, to define what those values ought to be. Wow. I love it. You know, this has been a delightful mm-hmm. and a challenging uh, conversation. Um, we, Kim, we, we tend to wrap up our, our conversations with our guests with three questions. And so the first one is what is a book or or a book you're reading or a podcast you're listening to that's um, making you think? Okay. So you have to tell all of your listeners to go out, run out and get this book. They need to read Whiskey Women by Fred Minnick. Okay. I think I've seen you post about that. <laughs> I have been posting about okay. it. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Um, but it's basically the untold story of how women saved whiskey and saved uh, spirits, the spirits industry over the years through prohibition, through, uh, I mean, even back to the Sumerians, like he traces history all the way back to the people who first built distilleries and, and, you know, and talks about women and their recipes and how they were handed down through the ages. And anyway, it's fascinating. Whiskey women. Whiskey women. Well, that's you're, a a, you're a whiskey one. woman, right? I am a little bit of a whiskey that's woman. Nice. Yes. Okay. Second question. What is your morning routine? What does it look like? Well, I think I just ran through it. I get up, I eat breakfast, and then I open a bottle of wine. (laughs) Wow. You get up to an early start, start, huh? (laughs) 
Uh, no, I will say the one thing that is routine about my mornings every morning in all seriousness is if you if you see me probably really about any time of the day, you're going to see me with a Diet Coke in my hand, which y'all y'all have come to know and love. So I start my day with a Diet Coke. I don't I don't do coffee or tea or any of those things, but I, I will have my you don't want to talk to me until I've had my Diet Coke. <laughs> I, know. I can relate. No, I can't. Yeah. No. Yeah. Other than that, mornings are kind of unpredictable sometimes. Yeah, they are what they are. Okay. Yeah. yeah well, uh, finally, what does big self mean to you? I think I have to ask it this way. What does success look like to me? And to me, it is seeing the women that we work with have that transformational moment where the thing that they've wanted to believe about themselves themselves for such a long time, they do actually believe. There are two, there are two different, there's, there's sort of acting at being what you want to be. And then there's believing that you are the thing that you want to be. And I love watching women come into their own and make that decision for themselves that they are, you know, they, they choose, they choose the things that they are going to be defined by instead of just responding to all of the things that are trying to define them. So that's what big self, I want to build a platform where we accelerate and multiply that and mobilize those women and elevate them throughout our region. And so it's fun. It's fun for me to get to talk about that. And and we are headed in that direction. And again, I'm just on mountain 11. And so <laughs> I want it to go fast. Yeah. <laughs> but that's yeah. Oh, I feel that too. Good stuff. Well, this is great. I, you know, we love you and oh, we you. are just um, so happy that you're in our life and we're in y'all's Likewise. And we have this conversation and live life with you guys right now. Yeah, us too. It really means a lot. And um, I just, I don't know. I'm so proud of the work that you're doing with this, with Big Self. You are not letting people off easy. And I think that that is exactly as it should be. We've got to have a space where we really dig deep and um, and move past the cliches and move into to real work. So mm-hmm. kudos to you guys. Thank you. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Couldn't have said it better. Thanks, yeah, Kim. We yeah. we just so appreciate you being on and for letting us kind of drill you with some some leadership questions. And I um, always love your insights, Kim. Same likewise, my friend. You guys are great. And I'm, again, just so proud of you. Thank you for all you're thank doing. You. Yeah, you me too. too. Thanks we'll, for being we'll on. We'll talk very soon and we'll hug soon too. Okay. Sounds okay. great. Can't wait for that day. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the Big Self Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, join the community on Facebook at the Big Self Society. You can find us at big underscore self on Twitter. And we are also at the Big Self Society on Medium, where we feature and curate content on topics ranging from psychology to creativity and productivity. We'd love to hear from you. What show made an impact on your thinking, your habits, your decision making? or anything else and anyone you'd like us to reach out to and have on the show let us know